This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome to the EDH Retcast, where we're all about commander, data, and dad jokes. I'm Joey Schultz and I'm joined by my fantastic co-host here. He loves Tales of Middle Earth so much that he can't wait for the sequel, Tales of Middle Mars. It's Matt Morgan. So I, I need to ask the audience out there, uh, if you know any good jokes about vegetables, I don't know any. So if you know any good ones, please let us know. Oh, wow. Okay. I, 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 I can't say I care at all for that joke, Matt. I, I need a good joke. Just, you know, one about vegetables that really can't be beat. And so <laughs> that's why I need some help. Um, one might turn it. I, who knows? <laughs> all that I can think of now is just like insert the meme of Sam from Lord of the Rings going potatoes. And I don't have a joke for it, but that, <laughs> now that's just the image you've conjured into my mind. So uh, I, I think we can kale it today on all the <laughs> jokes then. So let's, nice. let's move on that, I suppose. That was great. That was great. Uh, Matt, it's just going to be the two of us for this episode. What are we mm-hmm. talking about this week? Well, this week we want to talk about cards that we instantly cut from decks. They, we maybe played them once, maybe twice, but pretty much they didn't survive very long before we got rid of them. Oh, yeah. Cards that went yeet. We were like, oh, yeah, we, we're going to try this, try this one out. And then, um, yeah, no, we didn't really care for them. We gave them a shot, but they didn't quite work out. We want to talk about that experience. It should be a whole lot of fun. But we've got some shout outs to do before we get there. First, we want to shout out Chase, a.k.a. Manicurves, for helping us with all of the post-production on the show. Thank you so much, Chase. We love you so much. Also, do you know Coalesce Apparel? You should. They make some amazing magic-themed merch. If you want an Atraxa shirt that attracts attention, check them out. And of course, check out the EDHREC collection while you're there. But no matter what you get, make sure you use code EDHREC at checkout for 10% off your order. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by liking, subscribing to this video on YouTube, subscribing to your local podcast app, or by going to patreon.com slash EDHRecCast, where you have patron tiers of all sorts of levels, whether you want to join the Discord community, see the episodes a day early, there's all that and more for whatever you want over at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast, including the weekly patron shoutout. And this week, there's a real doozy. Uh, We have another Matt in the house. So Matt Bodensteiner with a power name, both first and last, Uh, Matt I hope you're related to maybe Scott Steiner, the wrestler, because uh, that would be awesome and hilarious. But either way, I, I always welcome another Matt into the house. I, I can't deal with multiple mats. Are you kidding? Two times the amount of dad jokes is way too much. I won't be able to. Whew, I couldn't keep up with that at all. Uh, well, you, you have to deal with it for this episode because <laughs> it's happening right now. All right. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, Matt. Okay, let's get into the topic. Uh, Matt, we're talking about some cards that we insta-cut. We gave them a shot, but as soon as we played them the first time, whether it's when we cast them, when we had them just stuck in our hand, we were like, yeah, no, this isn't working for me. So, Matt, what's the first card on your list of cards that you yeeted right out of the deck after their first attempt? Well, these cards, most of mine are going to be cards that I got 
I got pretty excited to play in because my deck building process is pretty fast and loose. And we, I think, Joey, you and I decided to do this episode because Dana, we don't have the spreadsheets to show how he analyzes and prepares his decks. And so <laughs> since I, I play fast and loose with what I put into my decks. And so one that I, I was excited for because it was going to be a kind of a, a Cathars Crusade on a creature was Vidalion Wave Knight. And that card... I, I thought it was just going to be great. Like I said, it, Cathar's Crusade is a very popular card, does a lot of really big and explosive things. But then I realized, oh, I don't play Cathar's Crusade because it's so hard to track. And if I'm playing a Cathar's Crusade on a creature, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of signing myself up for, for failure, aren't I? And sure enough, I did. So for those of you who don't know what Videlian Wave Knight is, because it's a fairly new card, it's two, a white and a blue for a 3-3 Merfolk Knight that says whenever you draw a card, put a plus one, plus one counter on each other merfolk and or knight that you control. So if you're putting in tokens throughout the game, like I was in my Council of Four deck, there were multiple different tokens with multiple different plus one, plus one counters on them. And just from the for the sake of time and my sanity, this only got played in one game before it got cut. Wow. So you're not starting with a card that was like, oh, this one was bad. Uh, you're starting with a card that in that Council of Four deck, you're making so many night tokens, you're drawing so mm -hmm. many extra cards. Like this, it would be a powerhouse card in that deck. The problem is just the the actual physical labor of keeping up all of the stuff with it. Yes. So that's an interesting thing where you're just like, oh, you know what? This is this is this is just like a, I was taking too much time at the table, not because it was a bad card. If anything, it was too good, and that was the problem. That's a funny way to start. <laughs> Effectively, yeah. Well, well. So we've talked many times about Cathar's Crusade and how it's a card that is so good, but also just the the time investment that goes into playing a Cathar's Crusade. It can be time consuming. It's it's really a labor to keep up with it, to track everything. And uh, I don't want to play that card outside of Arena. And I don't even want to play Arena. But Vodalian <laughs> Wave Knight is the same way. It's just there's so many things going on. Tokens entering at different times. So I, I create a token. It's going to have less counters than the one next to it, which has less than the next one next to it. But there's four that have the same amount. And so the board state gets so cluttered so fast trying to keep track of all these different tokens that Vodalian Wave Knight, I just... I was very excited for it. I said it on the, the podcast a couple times how I'm like, oh, this card seems great. And I was like, nope, peace out. Now, do you think you would ever give this one an extra chance or has it just already proven to you no? I think I would, but it's going to be played more as a finisher. Say I play it and then I do a, a wheel, for example, mm. and I put a bunch of counters on this big go wide board state maybe. And I kind of use it as an overrun type of effect. I think that's going to be something very, very different from the way I was playing it, where I just, oh, this is just a good value card. So that is a good question. And kind of probably something we should keep in mind as we go throughout these is just because we took it out of one specific deck doesn't mean necessarily that we're writing it off for forever. There, there are a couple cards I have on my list. I have, I will never play again, <laughs> but for different reasons. This one, it, like you said, Joey, is objectively very powerful. Just it's very time consuming. Yeah. And I think that this can also be a lesson about the way that you play it. Cause like mm -hmm. you've mentioned, you aren't a fan of the, uh, the, the taxing upkeep, like the physical upkeep mm -hmm. of, uh, all the plus one counters in a Cathars Crusade, which isn't an experience that I've had with that card because the deck that I play it, it's very straightforward. I play it in my Thalese deck where that deck is very straightforwardly. Like I play a card that makes five tokens. 
points. I get five plus encounters and all of my things right there, right then. And I'm not like constantly making different piles of tokens that have different numbers of counters on them and all of this stuff. So yeah. for me, that card isn't very mentally taxing in the way that for you and for Dana, it's just like, whoa, there's a whole lot of stuff and this is just way too much clutter. Um, but that can come down to the strategy and the way that it's being played, as you said. So maybe that'll change in the future. Yeah, I think I was too blindsided by the potential of Vidalian Wave Knight that I just kind of like recklessly put it in there. And gotcha. that's a lesson learned for sure. Yeah. All right. I'll move on to one of mine then. And this one isn't a card that was too good in the deck and was, became very fiddly. This one was actually just a situation that uh, I really wanted this to be good. But when I actually played it the first game, I was like, oh, this, I don't need the help that this one actually would offer me. So I have a Yannette Cryptic Sovereign deck, which is my Esper deck that cares about having a bunch of odd mana cards. Whenever Yannette attacks, you flip the top card of your deck, and if that card's mana cost is odd, then you can cast it for free, otherwise you draw a card. And I love that deck for sure, and I was really excited to see what I thought was a really overlooked card in the March of the Machines Aftermath set. It is the new card called Vesuvan Drifter, a 3-mana, 2-4 shapeshifter with flying that says you can look at the top card of your library at any time and at the beginning of each combat not just your own at each combat you may reveal the top card of your library if you reveal a creature that way the drifter becomes a copy of that card until end of turn except it still has flying and I was like, sweet, this is a really great way to always look at the top card of my library so that Yannette will always know whether or not it's going to get something cool whenever I attack. I thought that was going to be super, super awesome. And then I played it in a game and I was like, oh, I don't need any of the text on this card dang it. Um, I think the card is still fine. I think that there are definitely places for it. It's just that the way that I had built this deck was that I'm already scrying and brainstorming and manipulating the top card of my deck in so many other ways that I didn't need to look at the top card of my deck ever. I already knew what it was. So this effect was just never actually useful, even though it looked really, really clutch. And not only that, but all of the creatures that I have in that deck all have like ETB effects. And when you just become a copy of something, you don't get the enters the battlefield trigger. So I didn't even get benefits off of that. It would just like occasionally become like a 4-4 with flying. And I was like, dang it, this isn't doing me any good. And I was really disappointed by that because I was like, oh, underplayed gem. And then, oh, yeah, <sighs> alas. Well, and, and there's a big difference between clones like this one that become a copy of something versus clones that enter the battlefield as a copy of something. Yeah. So this one, it, it has a lot of attributes that you would look at and think, like you said, Joey, yeah, oh, this looks really good, actually. Why haven't more people picked up on this? And then you find out, oh, I'm the slow one here because I didn't pick <laughs> up on, on whatever. But you also kind of pointed out, too, you're already doing so much top deck manipulation that none of the text on that matters at all. And that's something that I've definitely fallen across, too. Yeah, and that just that especially was the that I think that's why this type of episode uh, feels like important to talk about or or to share these experiences because like I went out of my way to go get that card and I didn't think about how it was going to play. I was so excited. I bought that card and I waited eagerly for it to finally arrive and I, I played it and I was like, oh no. And I'm glad that it didn't cost me like a butt ton of money. Yeah. Um. But I think we probably all had those experiences where we were really excited for this thing and then we actually played it and it's like, D -d -d dang it. <laughs> and it just became an eyes are bigger than our stomachs situation or something like that. Like, I, I think it actually is going to be very instructive to in, like 
to to hear an experience like this and be like, hey, you know what? Let's all like you know a- actually play test the card before you commit to purchasing it, <laughs> just in case. You know, just in case it doesn't play out exactly the way you think it will, because that happened to me. Well, and and again, I think this has, like I said, there's a lot of attributes that you would look at and think there's there's something that we've we've got to be able to do with this. So I I don't think that you're out too much, or even that you won't be able to find another deck down the road for this, because there are a lot of things you can can be doing. Mm. But just in in Yannette specifically, where there's already so much redundancy for knowing what's on the top of your library, but also you're cheating stuff in for the the big ETB effects, and this doesn't get those. So if you need something that oh, I need something to become a copy of something that just turns sideways real quick. Oh yeah, perfect. That that's gonna have a lot of ability there, or maybe there's an attack trigger or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just because something doesn't really fit where you initially planned on it doesn't mean that it's not possible to to find another home for it down the road. Yeah, yeah. I think that actually, uh, you know, this this one didn't work out well for me, but I think any of the decks that are doing other types of top deck manipulation and any of the decks that have a greater preponderance of just, these are just big creatures in general in the deck. So I'm thinking a lot of like, there's, uh, with the new Lord of the Rings cards that are, that are coming out, there have been a lot of scry matters types of effects. Mm-hmm. So they're doing a lot of scrying and that this could be helpful for that. And a lot of those cards are also blue and green. And green, we know, has some just big, enormous creatures. And this one will turn into a copy of some random big, enormous creature. And it will fit in with the scry theme, I think, a lot better than the way my Yannette deck was working. And... Matt, I just now that we're talking about Lord of the Rings and Green Blue Scry stuff and all of those, you know, things that were coming out with Lord of the Rings and precons and stuff, I feel like maybe that segues into some other experiences that maybe you've had recently about cutting some cards from your deck. I mean, I have been playing a, I, I can't say the actual word, but a lot of a, a poop ton, <laughs> as it were, ah. games with just Lord of the Rings cards. Uh, I, I've been very vocal about how much fun this set has been just whether it's opening packs, whether it's playing with the cards, pre-cons out of the box, this has been just a, a dream set, really. And I have been enjoying it, yes, but I've also found some definite opportunities where maybe stuff was a kind of a miss. Um, one of the cards that actually, it's another one of the cards kind of like Vesuvian Drifter, where there's a lot of things that kind of tip you off to thinking, this could be really good, but I'm not really sure yet. And then you play, you're like, ah, this actually doesn't really do anything. Uh, Lidless Gaze has a lot of things going for it that normally you'd think, oh, this this is going to be a really good value play. Uh, Lidless Gaze is a new card from the Lord of the Rings precons. Two black and red for a sorcery that says, exile the top card from each player's library until the end of your next turn. You may play those cards and mana of any type may be spent to cast them. So immediately you see, well, you're getting four impulse draws on one card. It has flashback for, again, two black and a red. But also it, it's four mana and it's not going to be until way late in the game that you're going to have a chance to really take advantage of casting possibly these other big haymakers that you're stealing from other players. Impulse draw from your own deck, I think, is so much more valuable because you're able to kind of better predict, okay, if I impulse draw now, I spend two men on this, I, I kind of know about how much mana I need to have available. If you're hitting somebody else's decks, you don't know what could be under there. So a lot of times, depending on what you're stealing from your opponents in the tops of their decks. Atali is a a powerful, powerful card, but also when you steal something from the top of somebody else's decks with Atali, you cast it for free. You still have to pay the mana with Lidless Gaze. That's the biggest, I was like, oh, this looks so cool, but it's it's just, it's almost there, but it's just, it, it falls short. You do have an extra turn. It is until the end of your next turn, but also 
just budgeting out your mana over a turn and a half with a bunch of cards, it's so much easier said than done. Yeah, this card also reminds me very strongly of Fevered Suspicion from the Adventures in the Forgotten Realms set. Mm -hmm. And that one, uh, that one didn't just flip the top card. It's an eight mana sorcery that actually digs uh, through each opponent's library until they find a non-land card and you cast that card for free and it has rebound so you will get it again so it is eight mana but technically you are paying less mana with fevered suspicion than you are with lidless gaze because lidless gaze says that you still have to uh, pay the cost for all of those things. You, yeah you still have to and pay the cost and it has a chance to whiff. Um, but also, Matt, I have to correct you. Lidless Gaze is not just the name of this card. Lidless Gaze is also what they call me and my husband whenever we cannot find the caps to our Tupperware. That, there's so many layers to that joke. <laughs> and like, I'm, I'm happy for you. But also, you can buy Tupperware lids. You don't have to buy a whole new Tupperware. <laughs> but also, Tupperware is like, just go to Target and it's like a dollar for a 10-pack. I, I saw an opportunity to make a dumb dad joke, and I'm extremely I, proud of myself. I am stealing. I, I, I do, it, it was a very good attempt, yes. It, it was a good Attempt? Shot. It was a success. How very it, I, dare you. Okay, okay. It was, it was a good one. Um, but also, <laughs> it's just a dollar to replace your Tupperware. Anyways, Joey, why don't you tell me about another card that you yeeted <laughs> out of your decks because we're lingering on this, on, on not having lids on your... <laughs> Selves. Uh, yeah, no, I'm stealing your ability to uh, be the only person who tells the dad jokes, and I'm I'm and I'm stealing your ability to be dumbfounded by how, <laughs> how it unforeseen is. it was. Yeah. All right, I'll go to another card <laughs> that I just found to be deeply unnecessary in the deck where I was playing it. I was really happy to get one of the party time precons, um, which is led by Nalia de Arnis from the precon, but I went with the uh, pair instead of Folk Hero with Barakos, which can be any of the party types. So I call my deck Barakos, party of four, and I absolutely love that deck. It's way, way cool. But in that precon, there was a card called Maskwood Nexus that gives all of your creatures in play all creature types. And at first, this seems pretty useful for the party strategy, where you want to have a wizard, a rogue, a cleric, and a warrior, and that will give you a full party. But Barakos also just has this really cool trigger of whenever you attack an opponent, you will get treasures, and that opponent will automatically lose life equal to whatever number of creatures you have in your party already. So if you have just a warrior and a rogue, and then Barakos can fill in for any role. And that right there was especially the thing for me, is that Barakos can already be any of those creature types. Barakos effectively has changeling for the creature types that matter in your deck. And I was already like gonna put a lot of changelings into that deck anyway that can already fill that role. I found that Maskwood Nexus, giving all of my creatures all creature types, was just deeply unnecessary. Because yes, theoretically, yeah, it gives you the ability for any four creatures in play to be a full party of four. But never in the history of ever when I was playing that deck did I wind up with four clerics in play that all needed to turn into different creature types. I would wind up with like Barakos, a cleric, and a war just like I already had a decent even spread already. So I just this this card was solving a problem that didn't exist in my deck. So as soon as I drew it, I was like, oh, I never need to cast this. Even with its other ability of like you can occasionally make changeling tokens. I was like, I don't want to spend that much mana to do that. I do not need what this card is doing. Uh, so yeah, this was one of the first cards that I caught from that deck when I started playing it because I was just like, this this doesn't do anything for me. It's an interesting idea. It feels like a, a nice safety net, I think, but it just was very, very unnecessary for the strategy because I already had the balance basically down pat. Well, and I think that Basco Nexus is better if you want to still have Barakus' ability to, to fill out your party. 
but maybe you just want to kind of have that as like a secondary theme. So you're more delving into one creature type. Maybe you just want it to be Barakos warriors or whatever, <laughs> and you just happen to have Massacre Nexus in there because you want to fulfill some of those party type uh, kind of roles in there. So I could see it kind of being a secondary plan, but I think you, Joey, you're a little more intentional about how you build your decks. Whereas if the typical player was, okay, well, I just want to really just focus on one or two of these and I'll use Masked Nexus to kind of fill out and have everything kind of balanced out and fill out those additional roles, then that makes sense. And if you're, you're using Changelings already, that'll check a lot of boxes for you too. So I don't think it's bad necessarily, but it, it all kind of goes into how you're building your deck and you specifically, Joey, you just, so it just wasn't really a, a safety net you needed. Maybe, but I, even then, I'm kind of like, what it would sometimes do is make my Barakos attack trigger go from making, in, instead of making three treasures, it made four treasures. And I was like, that's not the biggest reward in the world I've ever seen. Sure. And, and so I still felt like that wasn't necessarily worth the card slot when I could play something that like pumps up the whole team or something like that. I do think this is going to be a lot more necessary in decks for the, that are using Nalia de Arnis instead, because she is just a rogue. And so then you might actually need that ability a little bit more strictly. Or there are a bunch of other decks that use this card to a amazing effect like Rin and Sari loves to make all of your stuff into changelings because then you're making even more tokens mm -hmm. or Magda Brazen Outlaw cares a lot about uh, finding a bunch of like, it cares about you having a lot of dwarves in play I think and then it gives you more treasures based off of that um, th there are plenty of decks that make amazing use of Maskwood Nexus it just turned out that for my purposes here this was just not one of them yeah and that makes sense it's sometimes just the way that you build it you again you, you don't need it necessarily uh, for whatever reason, because you're, you're building your deck a little bit differently. Uh, because, I mean, Masquerade decks, it's still being played in 65% in of Barakos decks. Yeah. So it's not like it's a, a, an unpopular or necessarily bad card. It's just oh, yeah. not for your deck. Yeah, and it's showing up in 72,000 decks out there. And rightly so. It's a really cool card. It's doing a lot of cool stuff. Just in this case, I think that it kind of became, it was a stepping stone. Or This might sound crueler than I mean it, but it felt a little bit like a a, a, tr a training wheels type of card like this does help you get off the ground but once you know what you're doing with that deck i'm pretty sure that the training wheels would only hinder you from more forward progress to do do a little bit more advanced technique and so that was sort of how i felt about that card i hope that doesn't sound rude or, or, or cruel about that card I just everybody needed training wheels when they started riding a bike yeah uh, even when you're 22 like i was and just now learning how to ride a bike so i, I get it everyone needs training wheels at some point in their life i just needed them when i was in my 20s uh, and, and some people some people need them for their decks too it's it, it's a good way to kind of point folks in the right direction and say hey this is this is kind of how you do it mm -hmm. uh, now take that out of the deck and take that next step and, and push it a little bit differently so I, I don't think training wheels cards are describing them way are necessarily a bad thing i think some people might take umbrage but maybe don't because you don't need to <laughs> <laughs> yeah and precons especially are always full of, of those types of cards yeah because they want to give you just like hey here are some ways that will like very easily direct your focus but also we want to give you some cards that like oh yeah we, we've got some better stuff waiting in the wings uh so like here here are cards that we want to teach you this is what a bad card looks like so that you can replace it with a good card instead and that's also a, an important part of game design so immediately what you're saying right now just kind of leads into my next card where it's it's a precon card that is training wheels to point you in the direction of a actually good version of that card. And it's a card that I've bagged on pretty much every opportunity. So here we are again saying monologue tax has been ah. heated and burnt and the ash has been spread across state lines so many times. I hate that card. Oh, it, no. 
<laughs> so monologue tax, folks. I, I, it might be the only card. Enjoy. Correct me if I'm wrong. I've cut in the middle of a game. Yeah, you. I, yeah, I'm, I, I do remember that. You were, you, you were like, we were playing on stream, and then you were just like, oh no, and you like cut it from the deck as we were playing because you were just so fed up with how nothing burger of a card that was being for you. So monologue tax wishes it was smothering tithe. Monologue tax is a smothering tithe that your your grandma has at home, not even at your home, but like the home. Oh my god, that is just less good than your home. So monologue tax. Two and a white for an enchantment that says whenever an opponent casts their second spell each turn, you create a treasure token. And a lot of times in a lot of decks, putting the onus onto your opponents to do things in order to make your cards good isn't really a great strategy. I prefer, and a lot of folks out there prefer, to be a little more proactive about why would I rely on my opponents to make things good when I can just play cards that I can make good myself. Taking the, putting the, being a little more proactive, I guess, is the way I prefer to build decks. And monologue tax relies on your opponents doing a lot of things. Now, my, I know I say that when I have a Council of Four deck, which is very intentionally a deck that scales to whatever my opponents at the pot are doing. Uh, if they're doing more things, I'm getting more things, but I'm still ha playing cards that are going to have my own proactive way of, of furthering the game plan. Monologue tax doesn't do anything, whereas Council of Four, I can still do something. And that's where just, this card's so bad. An important point to note Council of Four there, Council of Four has triggers, first of all, it has two abilities. Second of all, it has yes. the text whenever a player draws their second card during their turn, you draw a card. That includes you. Whenever you are the person who does that, you get the trigger. Mm -hmm. And whenever a player casts their second spell during their turn, you'll create the knight token. That includes you. So you can cast the Council of Four and something else, and then you'll get a knight token. You can play two things on your own turn, so you're enabling your own stuff. Uh, I feel that way about Lotho, Corrupt Sheriff as well. Which also, incidentally, is a rogue. I just got that to put into my Barakos party deck because that's a really great thing right there. It's a cheap rogue right there. And it says whenever a player casts their second spell each turn, you lose one life and you create a treasure token. So it's doing the monologue tax thing, but it's one mana cheaper. It's on a creature, so it is probably a little bit more killable, but it counts myself. I can play that and something else and I will still get that effect. And I don't need to be as worried about whether or not my opponents are enabling my card because I can enable it on my own and it has relevant creature type. Mm -hmm. So that is a much bigger important distinction between what this card is doing versus what monologue tax was thinking that it was doing and i know that it it let you down so hard and so badly in so many ways that you were just like i i think i remember you like genuinely throwing that card onto the next table you were just like nope that's going over there i am done with this thing i am de-sleeving it and putting in a planes because i would get more mana if this was just a planes right now <laughs> Absolutely. I, I And I wasn't wrong. I still don't think I've ever gotten a treasure token out of monologue tax. And, it's, and again, it's a card that points you in a direction of whenever your opponents do things, you should get treasures for that. And if you just look at similar cards, you're going to see Smothering Tithe. And now granted, Smothering Tithe is, you have to play, pay the Smothering Tithe tax from monologue tax in order to upgrade it. It's, it's a very expensive upgrade, but it's at least showing you that path onto here's how to upgrade. Here's a direct correlation on this to that. And so is, is there a purpose for monologue tax? Sure. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not going to say it shouldn't ever have been made. Um, I'm just saying I shouldn't have ever given it a chance in my decks. <laughs> I, I still think that there are times where this card would not be the worst thing in the world. Matt, do you know how many decks Monologue Tax is showing up in? It's in over 32,000 decks, and that yes. means there are 32 <laughs> th over 32,000 jabronis. 
jabronis. That, that that is a much higher number than I think you would appreciate from monologue tax. And you know, speaking of higher numbers than you think, I wonder if this would be a good time to segue into challenge. Into challenge steps. Hey, no, uh, no, no, no. I said no, it you, first. I you said did it first. not. You did not. <laughs> Matt, I'm in charge of editing the episode. I can make it sound like I said it first, no matter what. All right. <laughs> the listeners will know in spirit why we're having this conversation. If even if you edit it out, <laughs> uh, because yeah, like, well, and what? Oh, it, it, and that was just Joey editing out my segue. That was that so was perfectly not. planned, oh everybody. <laughs> oh, why, Joey? Why would you edit out my perfectly planned segue to challenge the stats? Oh, no. All right. Well, clearly there's some data on EDHREC that we don't always jive with. So we are going to challenge those stats right after this quick break. I got that segue, Matt. Doesn't matter what you say. (laughs) Hey, I'm Nolan Sykes, a host of Past Gas, the number one automotive podcast in the world. Every week, my co-hosts, James Pumphrey, Joe Weber, and I bring you some of our favorite stories from the hollowed halls of car history. From the amazing to the weird to the utterly unforgettable moments, we cover it all. Join us as we take a look at the wild stories and larger-than-life characters behind legendary cars and car makers. So if you love cars or just like a good story, check out Past Gas by Donut Media, the number one automotive podcast in the world. All right, well, I'm going to start us off with our listener-submitted challenge, the stats of the week. And this one comes to us from a person with an amazing username, at Lunchbonks, just <laughs> freaking terrific. Um, and they wanted to talk about the card Bothersome Closet. It's specifically, they were talking about it in their own Mazzy True Sword Paladin deck. But in general, this is a challenge that they also wanted to put forward for kind of any deck that cares a whole lot about casting a lot of non-creature spells. Because Bothersome Closet is a dang cool little demon. It is a 3-mana, three 3-2 three, demon with menace that says goaded creatures your opponent's control cannot block. And whenever you cast a non-creature spell, goad target creature and opponent controls. So until your next turn, that creature will have to attack each combat if able and it will have to attack a player other than you if able and this is a card that is mostly just showing up in decks for example i have a karazakar the eye tyrant deck and that is a deck that cares a whole lot about goading everything in sight and that is mostly where bothersome quasi is showing up because it seems to just fit in right in with the goad stuff but goad doesn't just have to go into a dedicated goad deck it can also just go into any deck where you happen to be casting a lot of instants or sorceries or in the case of mazzy a lot of enchantments this deck is really famous for being able to cast over and over again a whole bunch of enchantments because Mazzy specifically says whenever an aura you control hits your graveyard from the battlefield you can exile it and until the end of your next turn you may cast that card so it's got some straight up combos in this deck that are really really fierce like Unbridled Growth shows up a whole lot in Mazzy decks, for example, because that's a card that can enchant onto one of your lands and you can sacrifice it to draw a card. And then Mazzy can just let you replay it again from exile. So you can play like three or four non-creature spells in a single turn and Bothers and Quasit will be over there making sure that you don't have to worry about any of the creatures on the battlefield. And that's not even the only thing that Mazzy can do with like just that one example. There's a whole bunch of stuff that Mazzy's able to do replaying the same stuff over and over again. And this is a creature that's going to keep a lot of the biggest stuff off of your back. It's not breathing down your neck anymore. When Lunchbonks first reached out to us, this card was only showing up in about 12% of Mazzy decks. It's currently showing up now in about 22% of Mazzy decks, but you know what? That number can still go higher. If you need to control the board a little bit better, Quasit is going to do a whole lot of work for you if you're playing Enchantress stuff, Instants and Sorceries. You don't just have to pay attention to the goad parts of this card. You can also pay attention to the whenever you cast a non-creature spell part of this card, and I think that's a great suggestion for an underplayed card. 
card. Yeah, I like this card a lot. I, I think it's a better version. I, Joey, I remember you were talking uh, a few episodes back about cards that were only goading like a couple creatures at a turn or at a time. Mm-hmm. This seems like a really good way to repeatedly just goad the best things that your opponents have. That way you just get them off your back. And it's, I, I think this is a fantastic challenge. Um, it's played in a decent amount. It's 14,000 decks. But I, I do think that just goad is so powerful, it probably should be more. Yeah, this specifically because it also makes your opponent's goaded creatures not able to block. So like there's an aggressive component to this too. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that there's just like this, uh, I, I don't know, a, a reconfiguration in our minds that needs to happen about goad because a lot of people I think see goad as like an aggro type of strategy and it doesn't have to be. I think goad's really a control mechanic. Like this will keep you not worried about stuff. It will not attack you. So that keeps you safe so that you can control the board a whole lot more. And that's exactly what this will let you do in this deck. So yeah, <laughs> get to it. Yeah, I like that a lot. So one, actually, one card that I like a lot that I just didn't know existed because as as great and fantastic of a job as they did marketing Lord of the Rings, they did not do as equally as good of a job or they did equally as not good job or whatever, however you want to word it, <laughs> with March of the Machines Aftermath. Ah. I didn't even know... 90% of the cards in the set. Uh, the, it's, it's so crazy. I was looking through a binder of these cards past week and I found a card that just, I, I couldn't believe that they printed it. It, it just seems so good. Uh, Leyline Immersion is that card. It's three and a green for an enchantment aura that says enchant legendary creature. We're playing a format around legendary creatures, people. <laughs> and it says enchanted creature has ward two and tap to add five mana in any combination of colors. Spend this mana only to cast spells. So right away, there's a lot going on there. I bought a copy because I have a Tom Bombadil deck that loves to cast spells and I can tap him to make all that mana because I'm not always attacking with it. It's it's great. But one spot I'm, I'm kind of surprised I'm not seeing it in at all. There, there's only 42 decks out of over 10,000 to this commander's name, and that is Sithis Harvest Hand. So Sithis is the Selesnia Enchantress deck. Whenever you cast an enchantment spell, gain a life, draw a card. Leyline Immersion fills two very important things that I think you want to be doing with a commander that just kind of sits on the battlefield. One, you're giving it protection. You're giving it ward two, which isn't huge in the late game, but early game, it really does do a lot of work. Dana can attest to that with his Arden and Essior deck. Yep. But the second ability of being able to tap to add five mana uh, in any combination of colors, you can fix your colors right there and you can only use this mana to cast spells. Oh darn, I'm casting a bunch of enchantments anyways. <laughs> Turning your commander that only costs two mana into your best mana dork is such a powerful effect. The Aftermath set in general, it's full of heaters. There are so many powerful cards in there, but I just so much of it, people didn't open packs. They didn't really know the set went around. So I want to shine a light on Leyline Immersion. I, I think this card is fantastic. It does a lot of things. And Dana's not here, so we can talk about popular commanders this week. And Sithis <laughs> Harvest, Harvest Hand, number 24 commander. It's hugely, hugely popular. I think one way you can kind of push it over the edge a little bit, as if it needed any help, because it didn't, <laughs> is to give it protection and give it just a mana ability so it can actively empower the strategy that it's already trying to do to empower angel draw a card (laughs) angel draw a card off of it oh my gosh (laughs) yeah oh man yeah no that is an absolutely excellent card and this is something i I wasn't on the episode last week um when you were talking about all of the keywords with uh rachel weeks Mm -hmm. but the the ward effects like 
I, I do want to shout out like Ward Two is a big. De- you said it might fall off in the late game, but like yeah. Ward Two is huge. When like casting a three mana generous gift on a creature, like I can stomach that. Casting a five mana generous gift on a creature, yeah, that's hard to do. That's like that's taking up most of your resources on the on that turn. Or like, or turning your path to exiles into costing as much as a generous gift. It's the same thing. It, it scales up. So yeah, yeah. I I don't love Ward. In, in the super late game, because sometimes like, okay, I have to make a sacrifice. I'm going to pay this extra two mana to get the, get the job done. Because sometimes you just need to do that. But mm. you're right. In those early turns, like up to turn like seven or eight sometimes, it can really be a big speed bump. Yeah, just like the fact that Gearson Starn and Miram Sentinel Worm both have Ward 2 on them. I'm like, they shouldn't have put that ability onto those cards. No, because they didn't need any more words. That, yeah, that Ward 2 actually can really be a, a much bigger mental burden on your opponents and resource burden on your opponents than it first looks like. So like, yeah, does this give you Hexproof? No. Is it still good? Yeah. And in Sithis especially, like, oh man, I'm, I'd, I'd be afraid if I saw that drop onto a Sithis because it's going to immediately refund. You'll draw cards, you'll play them. That's That, that sounds like a, a really good time or for me, a really bad bad time it's really good and or bad depending on who you are and what side of the table you're on i i agree exactly yeah well let, let's segue out of this challenge of stats like i segued us into it and oh, let's yeah, get back to the main you. topic yeah yes. <laughs> yeah yeah that was that was definitely <laughs> you matt with the first oh man uh yeah i will go to another card that i took out of a deck after the first time i think actually maybe i give this one two tries before i cut it um but the, the, this one, I'm, I was like genuinely sad about it. It was Benny Brax in my Thalese Reverent Medium deck. Mm-hmm. So Thalese, I mentioned before, that's my black-white tokens deck. And the modus operandi of that deck is very much that I'm going to play one card that will just create, here are five tokens. Just boom, here are a bunch of tokens right there. Or I'll play like, uh, release the dogs, for example. Four mana, make four things. And then Thalese will make four additional spirits at the end of that. And then I've got a board full of like eight plus creatures in play. I'm doing well for myself. Benny Brax struck me as a really great card for that deck because Benny Brax is just really neat ability. I think he was from New Capenna. He's got a uh, Convoke so that you can play them a little bit more easily. And at the beginning of each end step, if you have made a token that turn, you will draw a card. And that's an amazing ability. So I am not discounting this card at all. This just, again, came down to the way that it was working for my deck. Benny Brax can draw you a lot of cards if your strategy is about making a lot of tokens on every turn. If every turn you're able to make a spirit or a food or whatever, then you can get a whole lot of cards all around. But for me, I was not making cards on every turn. I was making a lot of tokens just on one turn. So this kind of just became a slightly worse Phyrexian Arena in my deck. And that was a really brutal realization when I was like, oh, this is just actually not drawing me nearly any cards at all. And that that really blows because I love this card so much. Yeah, cards that are really good in theory, but then you're like, oh, shoot. There's the, the, the specific way you execute, kind of like Maskwood Nexus, the specific way that Joey is executing this deck, it doesn't work. If Joey was making a, a token every turn, kind of like if you're playing Regnan Krav, where you do want to be playing or creating tokens, I should say, every single turn, you want to be activating Krav's ability every single turn. Yeah, you're going to be getting a lot more value from Benny Brax. But if you're going big and over the top on one specific turn, then Benny, yeah, Benny's not going to give you a whole lot of value. So the strategy's there, but the the specific play patterns that you've built into it, they aren't there. And that's that's where, yeah, I could see Benny Brax not really cutting it for you. 
Yeah, and, and again, I'm not trying to say that this is not a good card. In fact, it's a really good card. In fact, it's a $25 really good card, and for good reason. In a lot of strategies, this works really well. And you know what? If I were to have gotten this card out in play with a smothering tithe at the same time, I bet I would have been singing its praises for a long time, but I still would have needed to realize that that's actually a rarity for my deck, and the way that my actual tempo construction is working with that deck is not in a way that be benefits the, the environment that this card needs to properly flourish. And so that was just a, a good thing to know. I think that is a good lesson for us to take away, that cards can be amazing but still bad within a specific context. Mm -hmm. There's never just a card being good or bad on its own. It's always context-dependent. And so this was an example of a card that I loved that did cost me money, a lot of money to put into that deck. <laughs> and I still had to learn the hard way that like, mm, this needs to go somewhere else. And so I'm still eager for my copy of this card to go into another deck later down the line that is better able to actually support it. Well, and that's actually a good a good transition to my next card. So it's a card that it was good in a previous deck. I So my Tom Bombadil deck in, was the spiritual inheritance or took its inheritance from my Alila Artful Provocateur deck. That was my Saga's deck. Alila just happened to be, you know, it had good color access, could play and it kind of rewarded me, but Tom Bombadil just much better for Sagas. One card that I really wanted to be good and carry over from Alila into Tom Bombadil was Dance of the Mance. That card, I, I, I was very, very good in Alila, but then when I tried over, because of the cards that I put in along the way, when I transitioned from Alila into, uh, into Tom Bombadil, it really lost a lot of its power. So Dance of the Mance is blue and, a, and white, plus X. So it's for sorcery, return up to X target artifact and or non-aura enchantment cards with mana value X or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. If X is six or more, those permanents are four, four creatures in addition to their types. So basically you get to not only bring back a whole bunch of your sagas, but you, if you pay X for six or more, you're going to get a whole lot of them coming back as creatures and you can attack with them later. Well, the reason that I found this card actually doesn't kind of transition over very well is because a lot of these sagas that I put in there over the course of transition, they have built-in board wipes and oh. that just doesn't work <laughs> when I'm turning all my sagas into creatures. Uh, so one ring to rule them all, for example, the second chapter is destroy all non-legendary creatures. Well, if all my sagas come back as four, four creatures, I only get two chapters and that's just defeating the purpose. And so, yeah, it, it doesn't work. I it kind of blows up everything else. Phyrexian scriptures, that was one saga. And I kind of knew, okay, like if I only have like one or two, that's fine. I can kind of play around that. But a lot of the sagas that I put in the deck, those all have some sort of board wipe built in. The phasing of Zalfir, the final chapter is a destroy all creatures effect. Wow. And so not only did I take out the extra board wipes because I realized, oh my gosh, like I, I just don't need anything else because I already have four of them in the deck. But then I took out Dance of the Mance because I also don't want to be blowing up my own stuff. And now... I understand the argument, well, why don't you just not reanimate those board wipe things? And to me, slow rolling and not playing cards, their big, their fullest potential, that I, I don't think that really leads to a great play experience again on a different axis because you're you're throttling yourself. Mm -hmm. And that to me, that screams of a trap card. Yes, you 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 have to very specifically play this. And I don't want to have to, it sounds weird. I don't want to censor my own deck building and my, my playing of the, of the deck because of one specific interaction that I can find a better spot. It was a carryover anyways, and I can find something that's going to mass reanimate all of my enchantments. I can just play a replenish instead or anything else like that 
that isn't going to turn them into creatures. I would say like Resurgent Belief seems like the, the card yes. that you'd want to replace this with. That one has a spend, but it's going to get you all of your stuff back. It won't turn them into creatures, but if anything, that might still just be more useful to you uh, because you won't have to worry about stuff. You're going to wipe the board with a whole bunch of them anyway. Mm -hmm. That is a very interesting scenario to run into. But like, yeah, as soon as you realize, oh, shoot, my cards are accidentally stumbling over themselves. That's not a great experience. And yeah, you would need to cut that out because this it accidentally created a situation where you either weren't getting full value or you were risking destroying all of your own stuff and it's just like ah dang this didn't do what i thought it was time to find something else to do instead yeah and and i'm again i'm sure i will just put it back into another deck that's going to be able to better utilize it that's fine that that's going to happen but it was just i was kind of sad because this one was specifically i was very very excited for but the first time i cast it and and got everything back i looked at it and thankfully the people i was playing with because this was on my maiden voyage of tom too so again very haphazard with some of the cards that i carried over but i just wanted to play the deck and immediately i was like oh this isn't good let's <laughs> let's get that out so oh man can i uh so here here what <laughs> yeah whatever the question is yes you can joey well <laughs> just i'm i'm thinking like i'm going to like oh here's another example of mine because you said oh this isn't good like <laughs> okay. I, i'm thinking of a very strong reaction i had once of being like oh this isn't good uh when i first cast an alms collector uh okay was it monologue tax strong reaction no, no, okay. no, because the monologue tax a strong reaction you had wasn't, <laughs> oh, this isn't good. That was a, oh, this is bad. <laughs> like you had a, okay. a stronger, <laughs> only I think you said more expletives than, than I just did. Several. Um, but, <laughs> um, but no, Alms Collector was, I think, one of the earliest experiences that I can, like that was a card that came out, I want to say back in the 2017 product. Mm -hmm. And Alms Collector is the uh, four mana, three, four cat cleric with flash. If an opponent would draw two or more cards, instead you and that player each draw a card. And when this card first came out i was like so hyped for it i really really was i was like oh this is going to stop other people from running away with all of their card draw this is going to be amazing no it's not and i had the when i cast this i was like oh this isn't good <laughs> is the reaction i had because this doesn't stop people from all of those individual ristic study triggers now does it the only time that this is useful is on the rare occasion that someone plays like a stroke of genius and you stymie them but that's really rare and so this card really only shows up in decks that care about the creature type of cat or cleric like arabo roar the world for example or rin and seri decks also play this one a, a bit as well but not even like a lot but like you know a bit because this just sort of is a cat <laughs> this is a cat that sometimes will mess with people sometimes it will make something interesting happen with a consecrated sphinx across the table but what this isn't was an amazing answer for white card draw. What this was was a disappointment that I was just like, oh, I as soon as I played it, I was just like, I never want to play this card again. Yeah. In in the entire ever since 2017 in in six years of knowing this card exists, I have still only ever seen it draw ones of cards. <laughs> <laughs> ones. There are ones of us. That, yeah. And I'm just like, that is a tremendous disappointment. And I'm not going to give this card the time of day anymore because it let me down. Fair. Um, so, so if we're going to talk about letdowns again, uh, Restoration of Igonjo is my next card that, again, from my Tom Bombadil deck. And I think this is more self-imposed wounds than it is anything. But Restoration of Igonjo is another saga that hmm. I, I think it's fine in two, three color decks. That's probably going to do a lot more work, but... Where I was playing it, it just didn't do it because I was playing it in a five color deck. And 
Restoration of Iganjo depends on you being able to pull planes out of your deck. Uh, I was playing it in a five-color deck with only one planes that just happened to already be on the battlefield. So again, there's the context as to why I just didn't do very well with it. Mm. So Restoration of Iganjo, for those of you who don't know, is, is two and a white for a saga with three chapters. The first chapter is search your library for basic planes, reveal it, put it into, put it into your hand, and then shuffle. Uh, then the second is you may discard a card. When you do, return target permanent card, mana value two or less to the battlefield. So kind of a, a Sun Titan light type of effect. And then the third chapter is exile the saga and then return to the battlefield transformed. And the backside has a whenever you attack or block, you create a 1-1 colorless spirit token. So those are all fine and good. And, and if you're playing a two-color deck that you're playing more than the one stinking basic planes that I was playing in the deck, it's going to do something. Uh, I like the miniature Sun Titan effect, but the backside also, so underwhelming. It has to attack or block. Only You only get one token. And I just, everything about it just doesn't really add up. I do like... So effects like this, like being able to grab planes and make sure you're, you're hitting your land drops, especially early. It's very important. I get that. There's a lot of value in those, but the deck I specifically was playing this in, just not the place. It's a good card. I think it's better for 60 card formats. It's probably where its power really comes out. But in commander and especially in five color decks where you're not playing a ton of basics, it just there's not a whole lot of emphasis on, on making room for this card. Yeah, yeah, and it's unfortunate because it seems at first like, oh, I'm going to give you all the things, and it, it again becomes like, I think this requires a much more specific context than the thing that you were doing. Absolutely. But yeah, it, it's kind of like Birthplace of Miletus. It does things that you want to be doing in, a, in any given deck, but also just your specific deck, you're like, it does things that kind of look cool, and there's, there's things about it we like, but it's kind of like Vesuv and Drifter, just because it does things that you normally would like doesn't mean that it's things that this deck would like. Well, and and that's kind of <laughs> I, I think that a card can still do something very very cool and still uh, not be good for you. Um, like yeah, to, absolutely. To, to use like you mentioned enchantment there, I'll mention one more enchantment of my own here that I played and it was like, oh, never mind. No, I I don't think I want this. Uh, which is a shame because the card actually is still doing something cool. It's just what it isn't doing is solving the problem that I thought it would solve. And so that card for me was cunning rhetoric. This is a three mana enchantment. Whenever an opponent attacks you and or a planeswalker you control, you exile the top card of their library and you can play that card for as long as it remains exiled and you can uh, spend any type of mana to cast that card. Um, I thought that this would be a really cool mimicry of like propaganda or ghostly prison type of effects to discourage people from attacking me because I would steal a little bit from them if they were to ever attack me. And that is not the experience that I had. Like, I do think that this card is still doing something very, very neat. And there are certain decks that will definitely want it. Like Tasha the Witch Queen, I think, is going to be very intrigued by like, oh, I get to steal their card. And I, I love that. I, I really, really like that. I'm like, oh boy, I get a card. That's really exciting. But then I also go, oh, dang, they're still killing me me though i still took 20 damage or i still took lethal <laughs> like yeah. this card did something exciting but it did not solve the problem that i actually needed to solve and that was the issue that i had with it and again you're still taking damage so yes it's kind of like uh, there was a card from i want to say it was back in the original exelon where create like every turn somebody has to attack you mm -hmm. and you get this small minor payoff in reward for that oh another but one you're, you're talking about yeah it's like a treasure cove that gives you treasure but you have to be attacked each yes. turn Yes, and so that's all well and good, but you're still getting attacked. And you're, it's all well and good getting the treasure or getting the card, but you a, you still have to cast it. You still have to, you, sure, you can spend money of any color, but you're still getting attacked and you still have to cast it. 
why not just do something that maybe spend a few more mana to steal a card and then cast it for free? Like there, there's Behold the Multiverse or whatever that big reanimation spell is that you love so much, Joey. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to cast those. You just spend a little bit more mana up front and then, oh, I'm just going to get the thing. I'm going to cast it for free. And also I'm going to get it from, from everybody here. There's just so many better cards. I And I feel like this... It was originally designed probably to dissuade people from attacking you. Mm -hmm. Oh, don't attack me because that means I'm going to get a card. But like you experienced, Joey, don't attack me because I'm going to get a card. Okay, well, I'm still going to attack you. I'm just going to make it for lethal yes. in one attack. Yes. Instead of I'm going to attack you for five and attack you for five and I'm going to attack you for five. Right. And that that's where all these cards kind of fall short. Uh, that's that's the experience that I feel like I have a lot in Commander games where it isn't a lot of chip damage and this card is slowly accumulating value. It's just like, uh, yeah, oh, the time that I was going to attack you, it was for you are dead or all your stuff is dead or the game's over now. And so getting that one card, it was just like, oh, that's not relevant. And every single time that I saw this thing, I was just like, I wish this was just a darkness instead that would prevent all the combat damage because then I would still be here. <laughs> like stealing that one card or even stealing two cards did not save my life. And I needed a card in that slot to actually defend me. And so that was the, I still think this card could definitely have some home it's showing up in 27,000 decks. So clearly there are a lot of folks for whom it is resonating very strongly. For me, it was doing something exciting, but the excitingness was distracting from the actual problem that my uh, situation I needed to solve, which was to stay alive because yeah. uh, the, I, I play games with Matt Morgan and he likes attacking me for some reason. He likes... I don't attack for five. I attack for 500. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And so I guess this kind of like leads into one last final like question. Or Now that we talked about a lot of cards that we did give some chances to, I'm curious your thoughts about like the, the difference between cards that we gave a chance to versus like cards that we... Mm -hmm like just we saw them we were like oh this is just i'm never going to give it a chance y you know like uh like avacyn's memorial when that card came out it was like the eight mana your legendary stuff is indestructible and it's just an artifact for eight mana and we were just like cool yeah i don't think i'm really gonna need to cool you know to, to deal with that one or like when i first saw the card whisper steel dagger in the rogues deck i was like i'm not even going to play a game with that one i know this card is not great um i'm just kind of curious if, like your thoughts about the the differences between like will i give a card a chance or not so, so as easy it is, Joey, to say Seraphic Greatsword was a card I, I looked at, laughed at, and moved on from. <laughs> there are actual like cards that I, I thought about putting in, but I just knew for some reason or the other I didn't want to. So I, and I think this kind of comes down to how you and I approach deck building in general. Mm. You're not putting cards in for power reasons or whatever, whereas I think maybe I'm just... I specifically focus, not to say you don't keep the social aspect of the format in mind when building decks... But I think whereas your maybe one and two priorities is power level, then the social aspect. Mine is kind of reverse of that a little bit where you might put deck cards in decks because like, oh, this actually isn't as good as it's going to be or it shouldn't be. Whereas I'm like, I just don't want to waste time on a card like that. And so, yeah, I, I think that all power level side. I mean, Kaya's Wrath is a card that it's coming pre-cons. Oh, yeah. And so power level wise, that's one I know, Joey, you don't like it all. I've learned to not like it as well. Uh, I, I've played it in a pre-con, but I've never actually drawn it and cast it. And I'm very glad for that because I've never seen it very successfully cast, if that makes sense. 
<laughs> oh yeah, no, I think that card's really, really bad. Because uh, it's double black, double white, you destroy all creatures, and you gain life for each creature destroyed this way that you controlled. And I'm just like, just play Fumigate. Like, that's going to give you a bigger reward. In fact, it will be easier to cast because it doesn't have yep. four strict pips, and you'll gain a lot more life, not just stuff you controlled, but like stuff for everything. So you could gain maybe 20 life off of casting that card versus like two life off of casting a guy's wrath. So I've like, I, that's a card that I see and I have like no patience for it at all. But that's not the same as some of the other cards that I mentioned where I'm just like, I do want to at least give this a shot. Like like Crafty Cut Purse, for example, mm -hmm. is a card that I did want to at least try one time because it looked exciting. It looked like, oh, this could be really, really cool. It, it might be a total dud, but it could potentially steal a lot of tokens from an opponent when they thought that they were going to make something. And it turned out to not be as great as, you know, and, and I probably already knew that going in, but I, I did still at least want to give that a shot compared to other cards out there that I saw and I was just like, I I, I just, I, I know that this card isn't going to deliver. Uh, Whisper Steel Dagger or Sarah for Greatsword, as you said. I looked at the card and it was just like, this is a laughable mythic. Like, what is going on? I'm not, mm -hmm. and maybe it's because of how high the ceiling potential looked like the, there are certain cards that do look like they have a high ceiling and therefore that's what makes me want to at least let them on stage to see whether their comedy routine is any good mm -hmm. and then there are certain cards where i'm just like don't even bother getting up from your seat darling this is clearly not the <laughs> space like you know and so i'm just like that that difference is interesting for me and i think i wonder if like the potential excitement is the thing that i find uh, is most instructive in that regard i think that's the lens that i happen to use is the potential excitement yeah thankfully i i know that i joke about being very haphazard with my deck building a lot of times if it's if i see a card that's in my in my immediate like 120 card list before i really pare it down if i see see something in the list that really depends on being in a good winning situation already to be good I tend to not include those cards anyways. I like to evaluate cards at their floor more often than not. Mm -hmm. Is this card gonna be routinely good versus it's only good when everything's going right? I, I've typically tried to, okay, this card's really only good when I have 10 things going right all at once. I'm gonna cut those more often than not because I just, I I don't know, win more cards, just, just keep playing safe and smart and you're gonna not need those win more cards. I think to an extent, I, I just wanna make sure that like, I don't accidentally oops myself into a situation where I say that I don't need to try out those cards. I still want to give myself permission to try out the zanier type of cards that look mm -hmm. like uh, these are these are going to be pretty inconsistent, but I still want to at least try them. I think that is an important thing about this episode is that like, sure, yeah, we did cut all of these cards, but giving them a try to see whether they could actually like do something really cool like it's nice to to give those those things a shot and there are a lot of cards auditioning for each individual slot in your deck yeah but it's still nice to at least you know just for one game i just want to see does this not work in fact well it turns out maybe it didn't work but sometimes it still could have the opportunity to surprise you and i want to give cards a shot to potentially surprise me um because you know just as many times as you will play a card and you'll find out it doesn't work out the way that you think it did there are plenty of times also where you play a card and it turns out it works even better than you imagined or sometimes like me you, you're playing a pre-con out of the box and you find out oh this elf that i thought it was an elf actually isn't so woe's pathfinder <laughs> my most recent yeet straight out of a deck uh, <laughs> What I, is I don't this know. doing you, in this elf deck? It's not you, elf. <laughs> yeah, it's not even an elf. Why are you putting it in the elf deck? I, I, I mean, that, that's an aside. But I mean, you gave me permission to say yeet at the beginning of the episode because you said it. And so that's okay for me to say it this episode. And I think I've, oh, yeah. said, I've said yeet more in the past hour than I have in like 
the past ever. Oh, that's amazing. Well, okay. How about on that note then, Matt, we yeet ourselves out of this episode. <laughs> oh, I, I, uh, I, I was trying to think of a yeet pun. Um, uh, yeah, let's just do it because of what this is. We've we've tried. I've tried. Well, I'm sorry. To, wait, to go back to your earlier uh, dad joke that you opened the show with, just remember to eat your vegetables. I was trying to think ah. of a, a way to like merge yeast and yeet, but you've done a much better job. So thank you for that. Let's wrap this up. <laughs> Let's wrap this up. Listeners, we would love to hear from you about the cards out there that you tried once and then you were like, mm, no, turns out not for me. What are the cards that you've had instant non-success with and what were those experiences like? And how do you navigate cards that you will give a chance to versus cards that you were just like, nah, I'm not going to try that one out. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this because it's a very interesting topic. But with that, we'll call this episode to a close. So Matt, if our listeners want to get in touch with though where can they find you online so you can find me on the social medias at mathemus 55 on any platform really uh you can find us also wednesday evenings over at twitch.tv slash edhretcast when we stream we have guests on we're always playing commander it's always fun so make sure you tune in for that as well and i'm joey schultz you can find me on the onlines at joseph m schultz and you can find the cast at edhretcast everywhere on the internets as well plus if you want to contact us you can reach us at edhretcast at gmail.com our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online being awesome at Mana Curves. Listeners will be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Wreck your deck.